This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 22 of Equestrian Legends, presented by Pessoa. Hello, I'm Chris Stafford, and my guest this week is Ellie Wood Keith Baxter. But first, a message from our presenting sponsor. The name Pessoa is legendary in equestrian circles. During his phenomenally successful career as a rider, Nelson Pessoa set his sights on creating the ultimate in saddle design. Not satisfied with the perfection of balance, aesthetics and craftsmanship, Nelson's goal was to provide riders of every level the opportunity to train and compete in a true competition-level saddle. A saddle that would be an aid to their balance and riding style, while offering a comfortable fit for most any horse. Most importantly, Nelson felt that the saddle was a tool that riders should not miss out on because of price. With these goals, the modern-day Pessoa was born and has come to encompass saddles, strap goods, horse boots and blankets. You can find out more about all of these products by visiting the website at PessoaUSA.com. Ellie Wood Page Keith Baxter was born on September 10, 1921 in Charlottesville, Virginia to Ellie Wood and Mawson Hoodie Keith. She took to the saddle before she could walk and launched her winning show career by the age of five. Inheriting her mother's equestrian genes, she soon decided that riding was to define her life and a natural talent paved the way for establishing a reputation that would attract show hunter owners throughout the Northeast. She rode numerous champions such as Substitution, Spanish Mist, Icecapade and Adventure for distinguished owners of that era such as Mrs. Jock Whitney, Mrs. Parker Poe, Mrs. John Maloney, Manley Carter, Jack Payne and Garfield Harding. In 1936, she won the coveted ASPCA Maclay Trophy and on four occasions she won the Piedmont Hunt Invitational at the Upperville Horse Show. Ellie Wood was considered the most famous lady amateur from the mid-1930s to mid-60s, who cut a dashing figure in the saddle, which was regarded as classical in her 80s as it was in her 20s. A lifelong fox hunter, she first carried the whip for the Farmington Hunt Club in her 30s and continued to ride to hounds with several famous North American packs. Ellie Wood was inducted into the Upperville Horse Show Hall of Fame and American and Virginia Horse Show Association Hunter Hall of Fame. In 2003, she was awarded the prestigious Pegasus Award for her lifelong contribution to the horse show industry. Ellie Wood married Charles Wing McGee Baxter, deceased, and the couple have one son, Charles McGee Baxter IV, and two grandchildren. She lives in Charlottesville, Virginia. Ellie Wood, welcome and thank you for joining me. I know that you've had such a wonderful career with horses in Virginia, and Charlottesville has always been your home, hasn't it? It has, fortunately. I've never had to move very far from Charlottesville, except in my, when I got married, I did move to New York, but we always had a farm in Virginia. 
so it wasn't like moving away from home. And you've always, you know, been in the community there for fox hunting and showing from when you were really tiny. But and you still have horses, don't you, Ellie Wood? So far, I always question. This, this year, I'm questioning how long I want to keep horses. But uh, they're back there, and they keep me busy. I have a little friend, a girl who has one of the horses, and and of course, she's the, she's the big help. Well, let's take you back to the very beginning, because you were born there, right in Charlottesville, weren't you, in 1921? I was. What do you remember of those very early days and why you were really bred to be with horses, weren't you? Your mother was a keen horsewoman. Oh, yes. Mother actually loved horses, and uh, Mother loved all animals. I didn't quite take that, take that from her, but Mother loved always to have, uh, you know, small animals around. And uh, we had a very small setup that she did. Daddy wasn't at all interested in horses. He, he graduated from the law school at Virginia, but didn't practice for a year because he wasn't very interested in law either. Went into um, real estate. But we always had the, well, we, obviously we had mainly ponies because I was little. And the ponies brought on mother getting children to come and ride and sort of, you know, have things grow. So where did your mother get the horse genes from then, Ellie Wood? (laughs) I think that just came. My grandmother was not interested in horses. Was there an expectation for you then to carry on after your mother and be horsey from a very early age? Because I believe you got in the show ring before you were even three years of age. Yeah. Oh, I don't, I don't think so. Mother's an enthusiastic, I guess. I guess I, like young people, I, I took to the ponies and uh, became a very good pupil. She carried on from there. Plus the fact, as I said... Having me, lots of other children wanted to ride too. So then that made it nice for me because then other children <laughs> made it competitive. So it was it was a good thing. So what was it like growing up in that era, Elliewood in Charlottesville? Well, in 1929, the Hunt Club began, which of course we all participated in, particularly Mother. Uh, it was just getting started in 29, but up to 29, they were just well, there were horse shows, you know, in Virginia, there were horse shows in Warrington and little places like Orange. And, I, you know, I hardly can remember how we got there because I don't think much of the transportation then, but obviously we did because I've seen pictures. I get it, you know, being successful, people see you and then you be, as you get older, people ask, and as it is today, people ask you to ride their horses. And in the show ring, that's how I developed into a uh, to be to be known. Well, you got off to a very prosperous start with winning your first jumping competition at the age of five at Keswick's Show. You really laid down what was to be obviously a successful lifelong career with horses. But I want to talk also about those early days growing up in school, Ellie Wood. What was it like? as a small child in the community there and the school that you attended? Well, after a very short while in the uh, private school here, um, all, of, all of us and my friends, uh, not all my friends, but my neighbors, we all went to public school. 
And when I got home, I got on a pony and rode. I never, you know, I never really thought of it as being special because there they were. And I rode and my friends rode with me and every now and then I'd got to go bareback and go out into the, over to a football game and watch the football game, which you could do then. You can't get anywhere near a football stadium today. But I would go off and ride around the mountains and just be a regular child riding her, her pony. And you mentioned the football. I know you are also a keen tennis player as well. What else did you do at school in the very early days? Well, you know, girls, certainly in, in, in public school, which I'm in by, by now, you already had in Virginia because hockey, which was the big girls' sport, wasn't in Virginia until, oh my goodness, really very late, probably in the, I was, I taught school and I taught hockey, um, which I didn't know how to teach in the beginning. I had to go off to hockey camp to learn. And that was in the 1940s, I think. So long before that, the only thing girls, girls really didn't play any sports. <laughs> I rode ponies. <laughs> Were your parents keen for you to have a good education, as good as it could be in those days, or did they give way to you and your obviously keen interest in ponies at that early age? Well, I went to school every day, and uh, they obviously wanted me to have an education. And then I went to junior college. I did go off to school. I forget about this. I did go off to school for uh, three years. That was in Washington. Even then, we didn't have um, either lacrosse or field hockey. We had basketball, and basketball was nothing like it is today. It was a very dull, slow sport. But I, I enjoyed my life in, in school in Washington because we, we got to use the cultural background of, that was offered there. Well, of course, the opportunities there to be exposed to arts, as you say, and the culture and music, too. Did you have any other interests develop at that age? I think not. Were, were you someone that was keen to get back to the ponies then, uh, get out of school and get back home so you could ride those ponies? It's funny, I never thought of it that way, because when I went home, I had, you know, either horses, and, you know, of course, I, when we speak of ponies, it depends on what age you were speaking of. I mean, I rode horses when I was 10 and 11 years old and showed a, a big horse up in Warrington and did very well. Uh, so I guess I should stop talking about ponies. Ponies were mostly when I was having fun. <laughs> it was small enough to sort of jump on and go out into the woods and tie them up and have fun with your friends. Absolutely, and uh, more often than not, be, be bareback too. Uh, but yeah. you, you mentioned then, you know, going as a teenager into horses, and, and you were winning in the ladies' classes then, because there were not that many opportunities for classes as there are today, were there? When I was really riding, each stable had its own stable of professional riders, and they had their own horses at home. Unlike today where so many of the uh, stables are with the professional but not in their own home field or something. So that I had the opportunity to ride all these many 
good horses because they had ladies' classes and they had amateur classes. And these men, professional riders, obviously couldn't ride in either of those. So in the horse show, it gave me a great chance to ride these good horses in two classes. Nowadays, of course, there would be a trainer to every rider. In your time, did you rely on your mother's influence mainly, or did you have other people that were helping you along the way when you became competitive? If you got on a, uh, a horse, say, riding the ladies' class, he would, you know, he would say, well, this horse goes best if you uh, have a little contact with him, but... That would be all all the information they give you. And uh, no, I didn't really depend on Mother telling me a lot at, at this point when I was out riding other, other people's horses. I'm sure that your mother would have been very proud of what you achieved as a horsewoman, Ellie Wood. Were, were, were both your parents very supportive of you when you obviously decided that's what you wanted to do in life? Oh my goodness! Yes, yes. Mother, uh, mother, particularly, uh, Daddy was very quiet about anything horse-wise. Although he was a whip for our hunt for a few years, but he, he really wasn't uh, horse-minded at all. In my fortunate life, riding was never pushed on me. It was there for me to include, to do. And then if we went off to horse shows and I rode the horses, I think I was too young to know what I was. <laughs> I was enjoying it so that I wasn't paying any attention. You know, I was just having fun at a horse show. <laughs> and you have two brothers, Jimmy and Tom. Were they in any way interested in horses? They were introduced. Let's put it that way. They learned how to ride, but that was about it. They liked antique cars and putting cars back together that kind of thing at that age. Tell me more about your parents. What kind of people were they and what sort of values would they have bestowed upon you as a young adult? Well, they were both Virginia background. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I don't think we got out of the Virginia blood till I married my husband. <laughs> They're mostly, you know... Virginia blood in my background, and I don't know, it seems to me I was oblivious of everything because all I know is Daddy was, as I said, was a graduate of the University of Virginia Law School, and uh, Mother, in her day, she also went to prep school and, and was well-educated in her way, but not like they are today. And in terms of the principles of horsemanship and what you can learn from horses that can help you in life generally. What do you think you gleaned from her? Well, you've got to be able to change. If you're mad, you can't continue to be mad and uh, ride horses because things just get worse. And I think that's good to know as you deal with people because you know you can't get mad at somebody and, and expect them to, to like you unless you forgive them. Not that they may, you may be the one needing the forgiveness, but, uh, and I think riding does teach you how to give a lot because these horses do need a lot of discipline, but it's got to be a kind discipline, which I think you need to have with people. 
You mentioned your husband, Charles Wing McGee Baxter, and you met him, I believe, on the show circuit. Tell us about how you met and how it led to marriage. What what period was that? Oh, <laughs> that was uh, I didn't marry with him. When did I get married? Nineteen fifty something. Do you remember when you met and and how he proposed to you? He had a farm in in Charlottesville and had been married before, but they had been uh, separated and divorced. And actually, I really didn't know them then. I knew them, but that was about all. And then I was up at the garden riding in the horse show up there, and we had this big box for 12, but he only only had six people in it. So he he, uh, invited me and friends that they were born that, you know, he had extra seats. So um, naturally, we needed to sit. So we would go and sit in his box. And then one night, he invited me to to come out and go to uh, the store club or someplace and you know, with them, I said, Wayne, I don't think your date will like this. Anyway, that's how it started and came down to Charlottesville and asked me out. And then it was New Year's Eve, and that's the way it started. Where were you actually wed, um, Ellie Wood? Where did that take? Did you have a honeymoon? Uh, here in Charlottesville. All right. And we went to Camille Bay on a honeymoon you have one son, Charles McGee Baxter III. Did you encourage him to ride? Oh, yes. I mean, I don't know whether I encouraged him, but I guess you'd call it encouraging. I had the pony in the back in the yard, you know, over at the, the barracks, the stable, and um, every summer, that's what he did. We would go out and ride, and then he, he got better, and mother was alive and uh, she, mother helped teach Charlie how to ride, really. So we would show in the local Virginia shows, and he did quite well, Warrington and Cheswick. And, but it wasn't a big thing because when he got bigger, none of my horses were really suitable for him to ride. And now by now, of course, Charlottesville is not very horsey. It's a university town, and all the boys are very interested in sports. And in the summer, they played uh, lacrosse. So we lost Charlie to lacrosse, and as I said, I didn't have the horses kind enough for him anyway. So that was the end of Charlie. He was a very good rider, so he gets on a horse once in a while, but not very often. I'm sure he has it in his genes. You were born, Ellie, after the Great War and, of course, before World War II. That, of course, was a very different period growing up in America. What were your memories of the war effort and the impact that it had on your family? Well, you know, that war was far away. And as far as the impact, my father, of course, went to work for the the government my brother, when he got old enough, well, he he went to uh, the university, went to one of the VF programs we had here, and then he had to go off. He was always near the end of everything in the war, and the other brother was too young. But we just went on in Charlottesville. I don't, I like to say, hate to say that I 
don't think the war was much in anybody's mind unless you had a child there. And you have the things, everything that you wanted to raise money for, there was a lot of that going on, particularly the British. Remember, we raised money for, for you Britishers. Forgot what it was called now. But we did raise money for you all in the beginning. You have been described, Ellie Wood, as a classic Virginia lady who could and would ride absolutely anything. And that, of course, gave you lots of opportunities to go on with your riding in showing and fox hunting. And you won the ASPCA Maclay Trophy in 1936. Did it strike you at the time as this is a significant trophy to have won? Well, I don't think it meant as much then as... I was flattered because I was the only Virginian. To, yeah. And I do remember that we were riding against these New Jersey girls. I can't think of any boys at the moment who had been very successful showing, you know, up north and wondering how I would do. And, of course, the course that I rode was nothing like the courses these poor girls had, children, boys, ride today. But I guess we thought it was bad at the time. And I know I was very pleased to beat this girl whose name was Louise Finch. I do remember her name. <laughs> I beat and She was from New Jersey. So I, I guess it felt like I was doing very well to beat her. Tell me about the horse that you were riding at that uh, time and the obviously very successful partnerships that you had with Substitution and Spanish Miss. Tell us about those early horses. The horse that I rode in the garden in, in, in the SPCA class was just a, you know, he, he, was a, he was a fox on a little bit of everything, very nice thoroughbred uh, horse that could, could do anything and obviously went very nicely. And then the other horse, I rode so many other wonderful, all wonderful horses. I wouldn't say one of the first people I rode for because I rode for a lot of Virginians. Uh, like Mrs. Ellen Potts, and she was a character. But I rode a lot of horses for Liz Whitney at the time, and she became Mrs. Person, Dr. Person's wife. And I rode for her a lot of her horses. She had lots of beautiful thoroughbreds for sale, and she showed everywhere. And then from her, I probably rode... uh, substitution came in but probably somewhere after her and climate uh, cold climate and Mrs. Rucker's horses horses for Mary Barber and I rode you know I can't even get them straight in my mind now there were so many and of course many of them would have got their foundation in the hunting field do you remember when you first rode to hounds well, I don't know whether it was the first, but I remember riding because the, uh, I always got to drag because I rode on Saturdays, being getting an education, and they dragged on Saturday. So I loved it. We were, <laughs> ran and jumped, you know, and I enjoyed the running and jumping part of fox hunting because that's what we were doing then. Of course, as time came on they dropped the drag here but I, I love to go up to Piedmont and the Orange County and the beautiful country up there it's more open than here so that you could do lots of running and jumping after the, the hounds and have great views of the fox running in front of you it's great sport it fitted in my life at, the, at a good time 
these are some of the most famous hunts in the country, aren't they? Orange, yes. Piedmont, and of course Farmington and Keswick hunts. Uh, how many packs do you think you rode with? I only counted the good ones, like Mrs. Hannum up there in Kesha. And, well, I haven't any idea. Probably 20. There must have been some wonderful stories told around the dinner table, Ellie Wood. Can you remember any that just come to mind of all those fox hunting experiences? When, when fox hunting really got slow here, and we had a lot of children out, the huntsman would say, okay. All right, everybody spread out through this field, and we'll see if we can get that fox up. Well, of course, the children all love that, and we'd go marching abreast through the field just trying to get the fox up. And sometimes I was successful, and sometimes it wasn't. I, I never hung around, <laughs> or, you know, very much. I went fox hunting and, and came home, and, and I know there are always lots of stories and if, if I knew them, I've forgotten them. Tell us about some of the other horses and successes that you had, and which one of those would you be most proud of, of all those achievements? Well, I always loved riding at Madison Square Garden. And when we rode at Madison Square Garden in the old garden, it was uh, quite different from the, any kind of national horse show they call today. All the horses, the stalls were all down in the bottom, and then you... You had to go up on a slant to the up to where the ring was. And in those days, to get from the bottom to the top, to get our horses warmed up, we would totter, give them a good canter up that ramp. I mean, nobody would do that today. Jump the horses up a ramp before going out of class. That would be much too exciting for the horse. Our horses might have been able to shake their heads so you didn't have to kill them exercising so they were fresh when they went into the ring. You know, today they're not allowed to tweak an ear without being knocked down. And in those days, of course, there were some great riders emerging in the the hunter-jumper world in this country. Did you have any riders that you would consider heroes and mentors to you that inspired you? There was Cappy Smith. I guess you admired him. Or if you talked about him, I don't know whether you admired him or not, but you, he was obviously a great rider of, of hunters and jumpers then. And the horses were so different than they are today. I mean, these horses today are what you call broke to death. I mean, we could canter around the ring, and if the horse uh, happened to change leads, they didn't knock you down to, out of the ribbons. Today, if your horse changes leads, you get nothing. What aspects of showing did you enjoy in those days compared to what you would do today in the show ring? What was the advantage of growing up in that period and competing at that time? Well, we would go into the ring, make our circle, and then we would start off and we would use our eye over every jump. We never counted strides. That was the main difference. You still had to have a good round, and you had to be even, but you never had to have five strides here, six strides over on that side. No counting of strides at all. And that, consequently, we could we could have a little more pace than they're allowed to have today, because sometimes you had to have a little more pace to get that striding correct. 
whereas I ridden these horses, <laughs> sell these horses. I, I ride at Upperville Invitational and Tony Walker Pot Canter class. And they say, gallop on. Well, let me tell you, the horses today do not know how to gallop on. And I get more forward and more forward to look like I'm galloping faster, which, of course, doesn't mean a thing to the horse. But it is funny. They have no idea of how to go forward because the teachers only want these horses to take these five strides or six strides and, you know, stay in that in that stride and not extend it. And it is different. And this, of course, you would have learned so much in the hunting field to go forwards. Absolutely. What do you think is the missing connection then between what it was like back in your day producing horses for the show ring and what they're trying to achieve today? Individuality. As I said, when it comes to these strides, if you're on a big horse and you want to go down there, say, in four strides instead of five, these judges today wouldn't allow you to do that. And it's, it's dull for spectators that they sit there and you see horse after horse going down in their four little strides. And most of them don't use the pace because if they used the pace, they wouldn't fit the strides on some of the horses, obviously. So I think that, but one thing that has helped are these hunter derbies. And they have helped to uh, put a little bit more spring into the uh, performances. Uh, perhaps you've seen them. What about the type of horse? Because you really had you know, good stamp of a horse back in those days, you know, good horses that would cross any country and take you all day. And they were, you know, very sound horses too, uh, for the most part. What do you see as the changes in the type of horses that you had then and, and how they have become now? Well, these warm bloods are much, they're, they've got to be a, a very pretty horse. But that's what I, I guess what I mean when I say, and I get on them to ride to make a hand gallop or something. The warm bloods just don't, because they know, I'm sure they can, when I watch them in the big horse shows, they do gallop on. But for the most part, they, do not gallop on. I mean, in a, with a thoroughbred, and you want to move, you just move your hands or your legs against him, and he moves up. Now, the warm blood, you move your legs against him, and if he moves up, they're not, they're not the ones that I've ridden. But, of course, I'm not a warm blood rider anyhow. So, uh, But that one, that is one of the differences, that they're not as responsive to your leg as fast as a as a thoroughbred is, as we were on thoroughbreds. You said that you never rode to counting strides. It would be instinctive. You would have an eye for the fence, and you would have an eye when you were out hunting, and you would in the show ring. Is it that the rider today, particularly in this country, expects to be trained to the finest detail? What What have we done right or wrong over the years, Ellie Wood, what would you say to young people today? Well, I'd say one thing, that they're very lucky. They are riding million-dollar horses. <laughs> you know, horses, most of the, from what I see and hear, most of these younger riders, they're not the top ones, 
uh, are riding horses that are already trained. They've already <laughs> counted their strides, and so that when these riders get on them, a lot of times, and I don't mean they don't do anything, of course you do something, but it's a more programmed ride today than we had because, of course, we were <laughs> not programmed to do anything but get over the fence. I, I do think that the horses that these people ride today, and I admire the horses, can really jump. They're very good jumpers. They're lovely looking, but they're not my kind of horse. Was there anything that intimidated you as a rider? When they started putting up oxes in the hunter classes, I never liked it because my eye wasn't trained to jump too, you know, to, to, to jump oxes and you galloped into uh, a, a, a fence and your eyes trained to jump one and then you, all I want to hear you do, you have that second fence there. So I don't say that it was intimidated, but I never liked jumping oxes. In the hunting field, as far as intimidation, I was younger. <laughs> I no intimidation. Well, you grew up, of course, at a time when there were many great authors of horsemanship and equitation, and reading is something that your generation did to learn more about horsemanship and equitation. What sort of books would you be reading? And today, do you still read horse books? <laughs> no. I know, as a matter of fact, my eyes are going so fast and I'm not reading very much. I don't know how I can jump today because my glaucoma is taking over, much to my sadness. Um, I can still see, but I don't see well enough to drive. That's about to kill me. Well, as a child, I read all of those English, Moreland, Mousy, all those little things. And as a matter of fact, I never, for some reason, I never read any horsemanship books. But my father, interestingly enough, was the one who said I should be putting the, my foot in the stirrup on the ball of my foot. And that came from my father very early. Must have been, what, right after World War II, somewhere around there. Because nobody rode with under the ball of their toe, you know, in early riding. They all rode home. But I think I was one of the early ones to start riding under the ball of my foot, and that had to have been about late, probably 39, 40 or something. And that's the only thing I remember reading about. It was the modern way of riding. And now when you watch the sport, uh, show jumping, eventing, who do you admire of the modern-day riders? Oh, the open jumping ride, the, um, the international open uh, I don't really call them open jumping. What, what, I mean, those men and women that gallop those horses around those huge international courses, and they gallop. Of course, you have to gallop a little bit to get over the height of those fences. They're the ones that I admire. Our team of Breezy and McLean Ward, who I think is a beautiful rider. Our American team all ride beautifully. Matter of fact, the Americans today all have a beautiful position on a horse. And from there, it's always your hands. You have good hands on a horse. To me, that's telling whether or not you're going to be good or not. And you would have ridden alongside the great American riders such as Bill Steinkraus. 
uh, he was he going into open jumping with him. <laughs> Mostly, I he might have ridden some a little bit hunting, hunting hunt hunters, but he was. And the horse shows was, you know, horse shows were very friendly. We knew everybody. We knew the, you knew the um, saddle horse people and gated people, and because they're smaller, so you had time to sit and watch some other division ride without having to sit through uh, what, forty or fifty. Heaven knows how many you sit through down in Florida. And your neighbor, of course, Harry Delia. Oh yes, I haven't seen Harry lately. I don't know how well he is. But uh, he'd come out fox hunting every now and then. He he would be out, and I'd see him out here. So many great horses have passed through your hands, Ellie Wood, and you've watched the sport evolve over all these years. It it really has been a fantastic life with horses, hasn't it? How do you reflect on it now? What do you tell your grandchildren if they ask you stories? Well, my grandchildren are in Florida, and I don't see as much of them as I would like. But I don't think they really, well, if they do realize what I've done, we don't speak about it much. But I've had a marvelous life with horses, beginning at birth. There's a lovely picture of me sitting very straight on a hobby horse. One of the things I've always been very lucky is, is that I've had a straight back. Fortunately, I think I still have a straight back. If you're going to be a, a classic rider, you have to have a straight back. So my back has lasted out all these years, and as I stretch here, it's still pretty straight. It has often been noted that you would be sitting in the saddle the same in your 80s as you were in your 20s, which clearly is attributed to your straight back. Yeah, exactly. I'm just lucky that, you know, that's an automatic thing. Uh, probably, maybe I... I don't know. It looks pretty good. Last time I had a picture taken. Uh, nobody today sort of likes the straight back so much. They like more of a bend in your back. But I, I've always liked the classic riders and the ones with the straight backs and the, you know, the perfect positions, like George Marsh likes. Yes. Well, you clearly had a natural talent and an instinct for horses, and I know that you would get on a horse and ride in the ring having not ridden him before. There clearly was something ingrained in you from a very early age. How would you like to be remembered? Would it be as a horsewoman or sportswoman? Well, I think everybody likes to be known as a sportswoman, but I guess, truthfully, I'm 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 really more of a horsewoman than a sportswoman, but I'd like to be known somewhat as a sportswoman, depending what you mean by sports. In the world of horse showing, it would be nice to be known as a, a good sport, and I hope to think that through my life I've always been a good sport in my uh, riding career. I mean, most of my riding, my really good riding was done way up north in Devon and New York and Pennsylvania and around, so I like to think that I'm not just plain Virginian. Ellie Wood, thank you so much for being my guest. Thanks for, for calling me. I'm flattered. I'm Chris Stafford, and I hope you'll join me next time when we visit the life of another equestrian legend. In the meantime, please support our sponsors who make this show possible by visiting their website at PessoaUSA.com.